Well, it is a joy to preach this morning. Um, almost two years ago, this next week, my wife and I packed up our U-Haul and moved from Minneapolis to Indianapolis, not sure what God was going to do in the next season of our lives as we were coming to the pastoral residency here at College Park, and it has been amazing to see the way that he's provided. So we love this church. We love this church. Um, I've grown spiritually significantly. I've grown as a pastor here. Um, College Parkers love their food, so I've grown physically as well a little bit with adding another baby too, but um, we love this church. We're dearly thankful for Pastor Mark, both Pastor Marks, so Pastor Mark Skydema, Pastor Mark Rogup, and then all the other pastors on staff, and incredibly grateful for you as a congregation. Um, when John Piper was here back in August, I had the privilege of being his host and was talking with him, and one of the things that he and I were just talking about is this church loves the Bible. So when Mark asks, aren't you thankful for the Bible? I have no doubt in my mind that yes, you are. So in light of that, let me pray and ask that the Lord would help me to faithfully open this word for you this morning. Lord, we thank you for this text. This isn't a fun text necessarily. It's a sobering text. And yet you have providentially given it to us in your kindness to help us know how to survive in this time of exile. Lord, you're a kind God who's given us your word so that we can have access to you. And so, Lord, I pray that as I preach, that you would incline our hearts to your statutes, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, and, Lord, that you would satisfy us. Satisfy us, Lord, with your steadfast love this morning from 1 Peter 5. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today is Memorial Day, and so I was going to ask you when the last time that you thought about warfare was, but I'm guessing for most of you that was this morning. So this morning, as I woke up, I was reflecting upon the fact that Memorial Day is a time when we look back and we're reminded that our country is here because there were battles that were fought. There were people who gave their lives to give us the privileges of being American citizens. And when we think about warfare, we realize there's a drastic difference between a wartime mentality and a peacetime mentality. During times of peace, certain luxuries are allowed that are unfitting, inappropriate during a time of war. One of my heroes of the faith, I already mentioned Pastor John Piper, he writes about the difference between a wartime mentality and a peacetime mentality. He illustrates this with the story of the Queen Mary, a luxury liner during the mid-1900s. Well, during times of peace, this Queen Mary, this ship, had room for 3,000 passengers. There were ornate ballrooms. There was fine china on the table, spacious rooms to gather. Well, when World War II happened, the Queen Mary was converted. It was converted from a luxury liner into a troop transporter. And so what happened is, what once had room for 3,000 people, lots of space, now had room for 15,000 people. People were crammed into rooms. Uh, cabinets that were once filled with china were now replaced with steel trays. Why was this? Well, a time of war called for a different mentality. It called for a different sort of lifestyle. When you, when you have an enemy to fight, you don't need a luxury liner. You need a troop transporter. 
Brothers and sisters, 1 Peter 5 reminds us that we're not only exiles. We're also soldiers. As exiles in this world, we have an enemy and a battle to fight. And this requires a certain mentality that times of peace do not require. So this morning, to help us get into that mentality, we're going to look at three different questions that 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9 addresses in order for us to know how to live in this life as exile soldiers. The first question is, what is your mindset? The second question, who is your enemy? And the third question, how should you fight? So first, what is your mindset? How should you think? How should you think as you navigate this time of exile? We've seen that Christians are living in exile all throughout the book of 1 Peter. And the answer that Peter gives for what our mindset should be is that of sober-mindedness. Of sober-mindedness. Look at the two commands that Peter gives in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Now, in light of verses 6 through 7, that might seem a little bit strange. Verses 6 through 7 are a huge comfort for us. We have a God who cares about us. He's like a father for us. And we can cast our anxieties upon him, and he provides, he meets our needs, he cares for us. But instead, Peter calls us not to have a mindset of ease. Yes, God does care for you, but don't don't live at ease. But instead, be sober-minded and be watchful. And we've seen this term show up throughout 1 Peter. So we see it in chapter 1 where Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then again in chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter wants you, as you're reading through this letter, He wants you to walk away thinking, my mindset needs to be that of sober-mindedness. But what does that mean? Well, when Pastor Mark preached through chapter 1, he used the analogy of the triple threat position. It's been since middle school, since I played basketball. But what I remember is that the triple threat position is one that you can dribble, pass, or shoot. You're, You're ready. You're ready for whatever the opposition throws your way. It allows for you to be most effective because you're always watching for your options. If there's a guy open, you pass it. If you can drive, you drive. If you can shoot, you shoot. To think another way, literally sober-minded means to not be drunk, right? So you're aware. You're functioning properly. You're not caught off guard by things. When Peter calls us to sober-mindedness, he's calling us to not be drunk with this world or with our sin. As exiles, we don't stumble about through this life. Unaware, accumulating worldly pleasure after worldly pleasure. No, we should not be caught off guard by the things the world has to offer. We engage with this world in a sober-minded and in a watchful way. My wife and I, we have two girls, so almost four and then 18 months, and our son is on the way in August. And as many of you parents with young children know, with little kids, it's funny, the the smaller the kid, the more toys there are, and the bigger the toys they get. So with little kids comes this massive amount of toys that you just accumulate. And there are evenings when, after we put our girls to bed, Laura and I are just like, we're done. Like, we're not even cleaning this up. We're just pushing it to the side, and we are done, and we just go to bed. 
Well, as a pastor, I have a lot of early morning meetings. And I'll tell you what, when I come downstairs after a night of sleep, the lights are off and I'm walking over to the light switch, (laughs) there are sharp-cornered landmines everywhere for us. And it makes a world of difference whether or not I remember or I forget that we didn't clean up the toys. On the mornings that I remember that we didn't pick up the toys that night, I'm walking around scanning the ground. In the dark, I am straining my eyes looking for anything that might look like a toy. I'm stepping carefully. I'm walking very, very gently over to the light switch where I can flip it on and let the gospel light reveal the darkness. (laughs) But on the mornings that I forget, I stumble out of bed drunk with sleep and put my barefoot down on the sharpest Lego block that we own. And I have to resist the devil putting some four-letter words into my mouth that I might scream and wake my children up. As exiles, we're called to be sober-minded. We're called to scan our lives looking for landmines and not to be drunk on this world. We're called to walk watchfully because, as Peter will tell us, we're not in the world by ourselves. We have an enemy. And this leads us to the next question that Peter answers for us. Who is your enemy? We need to be sober-minded because we have an enemy. And it's important that we recognize as exiles, the enemy is not the culture. Right? The, the culture is not the enemy. Not American culture, not Rome. It's not the people within the culture. It's not your neighbors. It's not unbelieving friends or family members. Our enemy is the devil. Look at verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're called to have a sober-minded wartime mentality because we have an enemy who wants to kill us. He wants to devour us. On the surface, you may think that you just came to College Park on a beautiful morning, dressed up in your Sunday best to meet with people, hear from the word, and leave. But the reality is, you came to a war zone. Right now, you have an enemy who hates you, who hates your family, and is looking for an opportunity to kill you. And so we, as exiles, need to know who our enemy is. From the very beginning of the people of God, there has always been a spiritual power at work seeking to resist and thwart the work of God, seeking to detract from the glory of God and leading image bearers of God to destruction. Peter calls the spiritual power the devil, but he's known by other names such as the adversary or Satan. Satan hates the glory of God. It's disgusting to him because it's not his. You see, above all else, Satan wants glory. He wants worship. He wants your worship. And he's content for you to go to hell if it means that he would gain glory. And throughout the Bible, we see time after time where Satan tries to take away from the glory of God by leading image bearers, people who are made in God's image, people whose purpose is to reflect God's glory, by leading these image bearers away from worshiping God and instead worshiping themselves, worshiping their flesh, worshiping Satan. 
We see this all over the place in Scripture. When Adam and Eve, the first image bearers, were in the Garden of Eden, Satan appeared in the form of a serpent. He appeared in the form of a serpent, and he sought to lead them to disbelieve God's promise and his goodness. Satan sought—think about, think about how heinous it is—Satan sought to bring eternal death upon an entire race, simply so Satan could get glory and God wouldn't. And Adam and Eve, they fell for it. They weren't sober-minded. They listened to the snake, and they became drunk on the false promises of Satan and doubted the real promises of a good and kind God. But having led our first parents away into death, Satan was not content and is not content to sit on his hands. He continues to actively seek to thwart God's plan of redemption, God's plan to restore his image bearers after they had fallen. We see this in the book of Job. Satan shows up and seeks to draw Job away from worshiping God. He's willing to do that by killing Job's Job's kids, by, by destroying his property, by afflicting him with sickness and disease. In all this, Satan's desire is to see Job curse God and die. Satan's also behind all the false worship that existed throughout Israel's history. The, the story of Israel is a sad story of idolatry, time after time after time. And what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us is even though it doesn't say Satan there, it uses terms like Baals and Asherah, 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us that anything that's sacrificed to a false god is offered to demons, to the demonic forces of Satan. In Revelation, we see Satan oppressing the local church in Smyrna. In that, he throws church members into prison, and he brings about trials and tribulations. He wants to draw them away from the Christian faith, to make them say, you Christians in exile, in Babylon, it's not worth it. It's not worth suffering for Christ or suffering for the gospel, and then to go back to their former slavery to sin. Satan even opposed Jesus, the perfect image of God. And he tempted Jesus to avoid going to the cross, to instead take the easier way of glory by bowing down and worshiping Satan and receiving all the kingdoms of this world. Christian, you have an enemy. Satan has real and genuine power. When when 1 Peter says devour, he's not joking. He's not downplaying it. He really and truly devours people. Satan can afflict with diseases, Luke 13 tells us. He can deceive people, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us. Ephesians 2 tells us that he can enslave people to their sin. And Revelation 2 tells us that he can even kill people. Brothers and sisters, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who hates God. And he hates those of us, all humans, who are made in God's image. How many of you have seen the movie Jaws, the shark movie? There's a scene in the movie where the sheriff is trying to get the people to recognize. I don't know if you recall the movie a while ago. Awesome animation, just special effects like crazy. But there, there, was, there was a time period where the, the people there were being terrorized by shark attacks. And these fishermen caught this shark. You know, it was a decent-sized shark. The mayor wants the people to be able to open the beaches then so that the economy can get a boost from the tourism that would flow from that. And the sheriff is trying to convince the people, you didn't catch the right shark. 
You caught a small shark. There's still a big shark out there. But the mayor says, no, no, it's good. It's good. Look at the fun they're having. Isn't it great? It's beautiful weather, Memorial Day weekend. Let's just go out there and let's swim. Well, as viewers, you hear the music, right? <laughs> dun dun And you know this isn't going to go well. You just want to scream at people, don't do it. Watch out. The sheriff knows what he's talking about. Stay out of the water. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. We laugh at that, but if we're perfectly honest, many of us, myself included, operate far too frequently as if Satan was not real. I must confess, when prepping for this sermon, God did a work on my heart. I, I think a lot about my indwelling sin. When I think about sanctification and pursuing holiness, I think a lot about my flesh. I don't think enough about Satan. I can operate as if I'm not actually in a war with a real enemy who is really seeking to kill me. And I think we're the same. See, we're the people that are lured from the beach into the water by the ease and comfort and happy lifestyle that looks like it's happening while Satan swims in the ocean like a shark. And we fall right into Satan's trap. The great theologian, Kevin Spacey, once put it in the movie The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Church, don't be deceived by the way things seem. The water may be calm on top, but there's a shark in it. You have an enemy who seeks to devour you, So we dare not walk in sophisticated modern man ignorance. Satan seeks to kill you, but he's not going to do this with a sword, not usually. He's going to kill you by whispering into your ears and appealing to your affections. His weapons of choice are words of deception that beckon your heart to worship anything that is not God. He's overjoyed to let you worship yourself. So he'll puff up your eagle, ego and make you think that you're the best. He's thrilled when you worship your possessions. So he'll throw your catalogs and consumer goods to fuel your covetousness. He's happy to let you worship your sexuality. So he'll tempt you to take one more look, to say a click of the mouse doesn't hurt anybody. In all of this, Satan's goal is your eternal death. He wants to give you your best life now so that you can have your worst life forever. You have an enemy who is in this world. Your neighbor's blindness to the gospel is not merely an intellectual problem. Your struggle with the same sin over and over and over again is not merely a battle of the flesh. The persecuted Christians throughout this world, right, what, 28 Egyptian Christians killed this last week? Do you know why Satan did that? He wants to shake your faith, to make you think that God is not good, that following Jesus is not worth it, so that you will curse God, die, follow after this world, and then spend eternity in hell. No Christian, you have an enemy. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. So what's your enemy, or what's your mindset? Sober-mindedness. Who's your enemy? The devil. But Peter doesn't stop here. And thank goodness that he doesn't. It's not enough to know what our mindset should be. 
or what our enemy is. We need to know how to fight. If we have a powerful enemy, how should we fight? So that's our third question. How should you fight? Peter gives us two ways in this passage. Look at verse 9. Here's the first. Resist him. So the command, fight. Resist him how? Firm in your faith. We are called to resist the devil by being firm in our faith. To which I ask, and I'm sure some of you are asking, how does being firm in your faith help you to resist Satan? Well, you see, Satan is fundamentally a deceiver, right? He comes at you to draw your belief away from God. He doesn't just want your actions. He wants your affections. And every attack from Satan is an attempt to draw away our affections from the living God who satisfies us eternally, to be satisfied instead on the path to hell and to destruction. Thomas Brooks, one of the great Puritan writers, wrote in a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices in 1652. Shameless plug for Eric Swanson. We're selling it in the resource area for $5. Thomas Brooks' goal in writing this was to describe over and over again ways that Satan tries to draw you away from God so that we, as Christians, those who are in Christ, can overcome Satan's devices. His very first device describes the battle for belief and the fight for satisfaction. Here's what he says. Device number one, to present the bait and hide the hook. This is what Satan does. He presents the bait and hides the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device he took our first parents. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. Your eyes shall be opened, you shall be as gods. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. In drawing you away from God, Satan will give you bait. He will give you pleasure, but he hides the hook. He'll whisper into your ear, venting about your coworker, it'll make you feel better. Buying that computer, you really need it. It'll make you more efficient. Watching that video, that'll satisfy your loneliness. But he hides the shame, the loss, the emptiness, and the judgment that will follow. So how do we fight against this? How do we resist temptation? We fight against Satan's lie with the truth. We battle the false promises of Satan with the true promises of Scripture. You see, faith is not something that you do once, as if you profess faith in Jesus and then move on with your life. No. Resisting the devil is a daily, continual fight for faith. I've felt this myself as my wife and I have looked to move to the Middle East to plant a church in the United Arab Emirates. Do you remember from the stewardship series, um, Pastor Mark's illustration of killing the curl, how we curl onto our stuff and, and we need to kill the curl as Christians? Well, Laura and I began selling some of our possessions during that series. Right? Talk about God's providence. And I felt Satan during that time roaring at my wife and I 
that it's not worth it. That selling our things are not worth it. I, I should curl my fingers around our stuff. That if we took this step, God would not provide for our possessions. And that we would be left without a house, without a table, without a bookcase, without toys. He presented that lie to me, that I should hold on to my stuff, because God wouldn't provide. So what do I do? So I fight for faith with the promise of Philippians 4, that, that God should and will supply all of my needs according to his riches in Christ. God is not lacking that he cannot provide. And he may not provide me with a house or with a bookcase or with a table, but he will provide me the joy and the satisfaction and the delight that I need that I won't want a house, a bookcase, or a table. That'll one, right? No. Then after we sold some of our things, what does Satan do? He roars at me, telling me how righteous I am. After all, Luke, you're more holy than those people with houses and bookcases and tables. How good must it feel to be a better Christian than they are? So do I do. So I fought for faith with the promise of God's truth in 1 Corinthians 4. That the very ability to pursue this journey, the very ability to sell our stuff is not from me. It's a gift from God. He gives the grace that allows for me to do that. And so I can't boast, and I can't find my righteousness in myself. And the people who aren't called to sell their things, they have challenges as well. And God has given them unique gifts in order to maximize his glory in their lives. I fought against judgment that God calls people to different callings. Battle won, right? Wrong. Then Satan roars again. Because after all, if they can have bookshelves, then when I get to Dubai, I'm going to buy a really, really nice bookshelf. All right? It's going to be amazing. So I fight again with the pleasure of the fullness of joy in Christ. Christian, the point is, Satan is willing to concede a loss to counterattack when you feel like you've won. We resist him daily. We fight for faith daily. And the way we do that is with the promises of Scripture. So if you don't know promises to resist the devil, then what I commend to you are fighter verses that we have. They're on the back of your bulletin. You can rip them off, put them in your wallet, hang them on your car. They're a great way to memorize promises in order to resist against Satan's lies. But here's the thing that we must remember, lest we forget it. As we resist the devil, we don't resist from a position of defeat. We resist from a position of victory. Christian, Satan roars like a lion, but it's a roar from defeat. He roars like a lion, but there is a true and greater lion, the lion of Judah, who has shattered his skull. There's nothing Satan can do to harm you. We sang a mighty fortress is our God. He has real power. He has real daggers. He has real darts. One little word. One little word shall fell him. All of redemptive history has been pointing to the fact that there would be, from the time that our parents, Adam and Eve, fell, there would be this king who would crush the head of Satan. Look at Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, 
the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He'll be afflicted, but you'll be crushed. From the very beginning of redemptive history, God promised this hope, this hope that Satan would not win. When it looked darkest at the fall, God promised the gospel light in Christ. That a snake crusher would come who would defeat Satan and would restore God's people to God's place. And then, 2,000 years ago, he did it. Jesus came. He walked into the wilderness and triumphed where Adam fell. He conquered where Adam caved. Jesus stood firm in his faith. Satan roared and raged at Jesus, but he stood firm in his faith so that he can uphold our faith. He did it for us. And then on the cross, even Satan's attempt to crucify God's king, on the cross, what do we see? We see that it led to Satan's downfall. Satan may have bruised Jesus' heel, but Jesus shattered his skull. So all of the temptations and the trials and the tribulations that we face, that Satan throws your way, you got to know, those are death throws. You've killed a serpent before, right? The body still throws about, and it's scary. That serpent's going to die. And Jesus killed Satan. He's still acting, he's still powerful, but he is as good as done. He is as powerless as a character against the author of a story. He's as powerful, powerless as a creature against the creator. God steers every action of Satan towards his own redemptive purpose in Christ. And the resurrected and reigning Jesus, who silenced Satan's roars and shattered Satan's skull, he has sent his resurrection spirit, if you're a believer, into your heart so that you too can fight from the victory that he accomplished. So that you don't have to fear the roar, but instead you can fight firm in your faith. Christian, Satan is real. He's powerful. But his power is nothing. It's nothing compared to the resurrected spirit who dwells in you. And if any of you in this room are not trusting in Christ, you need to know that, that this is for you. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, I don't have that confidence against Satan's roar, then you can receive it by facing Christ right now and have boldness and access with confidence into the throne of God to be clothed with the victory of Jesus. I'd love to be talk to you afterwards. People down at the front would love to share more about what it looks like to cast free your bondage and slavery to Satan and to instead receive Christ and his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we fight firm in our faith because Jesus, he's won the war. He has won the war. Finally, we not only fight firm in our faith, but we join the resistance of brothers around the world. Look at verse 9. Knowing that, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What a gift it is to know that we don't fight alone. It can feel like that sometimes when Satan comes at you. But Jesus, he's such a kind God. Jesus didn't just win the war for us, but then he put us in an army. 
an army to fight alongside and to fight with us against Satan's onslaughts. I was talking with um, Tim Whitney, another one of our pastoral residents here, and Tim used to be a Navy diver, and he was telling me about this passage that uh, when the uh, military is training people in resisting um, interrogation, prisoners of war, and whatnot, um, the best way that you can fight when your will feels weakened is how? It's by motivating the other prisoners alongside of you to resist as well. So when you feel weak, the way that you bolster your confidence is by hearing your brothers in arms resisting, resisting the onslaught. I didn't do any research on that, so that's wrong. Tim Whitney, email twhitney at yourchurch.com. But that's what Tim told me. I think that's a great picture, right? Your ability to encourage your brothers in Christ and to be encouraged by your brothers in Christ allows for you to stand firm in your faith. When we confess our sins to one another, Satan feels less scary. We bring the darkness into the light. When we pray for each other, he loses a foothold because we're tapping into the power of God. When we walk with each other through the darkness of despair and comfort each other and remind one another of the hope that we have in Jesus, the light of the glory of Christ shines brighter than Satan's darkness. Stories of persecuted Christians around the world, they bolster our confidence in the worth of King Jesus. He's worth it. Why? Because people are giving their lives for it. Stories of churches being planted in the most unreached areas of the world remind us the gates of hell will not advance against the church of Christ. Stories of sins conquered, marriages restored, conversions of the outcasts, on and on and on. Those stories of our brothers in arms resisting the devil, they ignite a passion to follow Jesus even into the darkest places of the world. Brothers and sisters, by the power of the Spirit, Motivate your fellow brothers in arms with battle stories of triumph. Motivate yourself by listening to your brothers. There's a ton of ways you can do this. At at my previous church, I I worked in the missions department there. We had a number of missionaries, and I would regularly receive and read through dozens of prayer letters. Each one of those letters was a reminder that Satan has lost the war that there's somebody who has professed faith in Christ in the far corners of the earth, and the kingdom of darkness is retreating further and further back. You can do this too. We have a global outreach wall there. Subscribe to the missionary prayer letters. Pray for them regularly in the booklet that we have. Receive those and remind yourself and be encouraged that though this world with devils filled, King Jesus has won the war. Another way you can do this is by celebrating the resistance of the devil in your fellow church members' lives. Grab coffee with someone in your small group or someone in your adult big group, someone in your class. Grab coffee with this person and talk about ways you have resisted. Be encouraged by your brother's faith and your sister's faith. Enlist the troops in praying for you when you feel weak. We have these glorious things called cell phones. When you feel tempted, you can text a person and they'll text you back. And they'll remind you that they're praying for you. These acts may seem small to us, but each and every one of them accumulates into Satan's downfall. It's true, we fight a powerful enemy, but because of Christ, we do not fight alone. 
you're in a war today. Your mindset needs to be sober-minded. You have an enemy that you need to know. You need to know his schemes. You need to know how to fight firm in your faith and alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the hope that we have, because the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that of Romans 16. The God of peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, church, as he crushed them under Christ's feet, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Resist the devil, firm in your faith. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the way that you have spoken to us through it. Thank you, Jesus, that you won the war so that we can find refuge in you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us this week when the world lulls us to calm and peace, that you would allow for us to faithfully resist the devil. Because, Jesus, you are far more satisfying than anything Satan can throw at you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.